Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. Had a fun episode for you guys today. Brian Whalen is coming on the podcast. And that name, as it is, might not sound familiar to you, but no. you may know him by his Instagram handle, Brian's Questionable Decisions. And there's a few questionable decisions here. Is buying a Ferrari is a questionable decision. <laughs> buying a Ferrari with CIS or any car with CIS can be a questionable decision. For sure. Um, buying a Ferrari and then putting roof rack stuff on it can be a questionable decision. Right. And uh, driving it to the Arctic Ocean, certainly a questionable decision by most. And by questionable, I don't mean it's potentially wrong. But I think it's worthy you of would talking about it. Why, are, why, you why are you doing that? that? Why are you doing that? <laughs> so he's got a 1982 Ferrari 308 GTSI. Okay. So I, I had no idea what a GTSI is. I know. So I you know the up. 308. It's the classic. Ferrari I know what a 308 wedge. is, but I don't I'm, know. I'm, I'm telling our listeners. Oh. You guys know what a 308 is, but I agree. I didn't know what GTS means. Yeah. GTS, and the I, I'm sure, means something. Yeah. The GTS just means it's a Targa. So oh, really? So it's, it's the, not the slick top. It's the Targa top. Okay. And the, and the I just means injected. Okay. So you had, you know, you had the Weber version, and then you had the CIS version. So you could still get it with Weber carbs. Yes, you in America, I don't know, but I think it was an option. Sure. Yeah, I think you could. Um, so it had Cajetronic, oh. which is uh, basically Bosch's. Uh, it's Bosch. Yeah, it's, it had two hundred and two horsepower. Okay. And I called up uh, Mike Burroughs. I said, "Hey, how much did your car weigh?" Because I know that he weighed his yeah. three hundred eight. It's uh, thirty two hundred pounds. Okay. So you got 200 horsepower Ferrari, 3,200 pounds, which is not exactly world beating. No. But uh, I was thinking to myself, if you're in 1982 and you walk up to a girl and you go, hey, I've got cocaine and a Ferrari. <laughs> it does not matter how much horsepower it has. Does True. not matter. True. Nobody cares. Um, k Tronic is, you know, all over the internet, it's referred to as MFI. Okay. Which is, in my mind, when I think MFI, I think of like Bosch MFI with a rotary pump, yeah. like diesel, or, or you think of like uh, MFI that would be on like a Can-Am car or something like that. Right. Very simplistic. Where it's Very a pump, simple. lines into injectors. Yeah. You basically, you basically have a little thing that pressurizes each injector when right. it needs to fire. The K in Cajetronic stands for... Continuerlish. Continuerlish, which means... Continuous. Continuous. So Cajetronic, yeah, it's continuous injection system, CIS, right. is how it's most commonly known. Depending on how many cylinders you have, you have injectors. So in his right. case, he's got eight injectors that have a spring in them uh-huh. that open at a particular pressure. Sure. So but how do you decide what pressure they open, how much fuel is going to be, blah, 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 blah. You have to have some sort of system to say how much pressure is going to be going to the injectors right. for the volume of fuel based on the RP. Based on the the air that's coming in in the engine, they don't and have. There's no mass Bosch sensors. Do it, those silly Germans. So, a giant barn door. Well, essentially, yes. you have you have a fuel distributor, <laughs> uh-huh. which looks like uh, looks like a giant spider. You know, it's got it's, it's like a yeah, big black thing lines with fuel lines coming. Hard lines. They're they're really pretty, honestly. I think yeah. they're no, I think they're cool. You got especially the old Mercedes stuff is brass lines that come off, or at least brass colored lines that come off the fuel distributor. I think they look as a mechanical thing. I think they look neat. I think as a, as a machine, they look neat. So there's inside of this is a, you have a throttle body. Mm-hmm. So the throttle body is not in the fuel distributor. It's no, it's upstream. That, that controls it be, the air. It'd be downstream. Downstream. It so it's downstream. The air, but does not meter. Right. The so the throttle body opens, which then changes the vacuum that the motor is making, pulls right. more air through. And inside this fuel distributor, you have a bowl. Yeah. Which is, it just, it literally looks like a bowl. Like you yes, could eat cereal out of it. And it has a circular plate that sits in this bowl that blocks the airflow. Right. Okay. Except at idle, it lets a little bit of airflow through, right? right. It's a very little bit of air through. And it is a lever. 
And on the other side of this circle that is centered in the bowl is a weight, uh-huh. right? So it's got a weight on the other side. And when you open the throttle, uh-huh. it pulls up on that circle as the air passes through that little circular metal plate, as the air passes through and it moves on the fulcrum and that allows fuel pressure to pass through. Right. That's the basic rudimentary thing is the more air that thing lifts up more. Guess what? More air is <laughs> the further more you push the flap down, the more fuel you let through. That's the basic premise of it. Now there's different things you can do. They, they eventually this, his, how did anyone think this was better than carburetors? Probably because it seems so like it's think archaic. about it this way. If you're in elevation, you need less fuel, right? Yeah. So there's probably less fuel coming through. So it is a very rudimentary metering system. Yeah, so it's a way to meter the fuel based on the air versus, you know, carburetors are very set. Very Yeah. But you can change the global fuel level if you want. There's like a three millimeter Allen screw. You on can, the CIS. On the distributor, you stick it in there and you can you can turn it around a bunch yeah. and then totally screw up your air fuel <laughs> Like You can mess it up real fast. You oh, can, good. So you, like a quarter turn does a lot. Anyway, that's this fuel system that's on this thing. No O2, O2 sensor. It probably has a uh, a pressure, like a, what would be a cold, not, like a, I forget what it's called, the little warm-up regulator. Yes. The warm-up regulator sits on the intake manifold where it's bolted to the engine block right. or the cylinder head. Okay. And as that warms up and cools down, it tells the fuel distributor to let more or less fuel. So you can get a little bit of temperature control there with the warm-up regulator. When it's cold, obviously, it lets more fuel through. When it's hot, it's less. So this is all black magic, right? As, As... it's it's all this like concert where all these different parts have to kind of work together in their little in their little concerto that they have. And if one part doesn't work, none of it works. Right. It all sucks. And there's it's very vacuum line dependent, obviously, it's right? Like you said it's beautiful. The thing looks like a rat's nest, usually. You have so many lines going so many different places. Where does this one go? I don't know. It became unplugged. Well, that's not good. No, it has way less vacuum lines than a than a late eighties, early nineties uh fuel injection system. Well, sure, it has but way I'm not less. saying, oh, one thing's terrible, so this is less terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I like CIS when it works because it does work very, very well, and it is basic. My car was CIS for a long time before right. I switched over to the carbs. I drove it for 50,000 miles, never had a problem, but the reason is is because I replaced everything. Yeah. Anyways, I'm do really- you know, Do you know the best part about a 308, though? What? The slow down light. Slow down light? Have you seen these? No. Okay. So on the dashboard, you can see them on his account as well. Brian's questionable decisions. He has a picture of the dashboard. There are two under the steering wheel on the dashboard on both sides, slow down lights. Slow down cylinders one through four, slow down cylinders five through eight. All this is, it's a thermocoupler sensor on the catalytic converter on both banks. And what happens is if something goes wrong in this mess of CIS and it starts dumping more fuel than the engine needs, what does that do? It causes unburnt fuel to go down into the catalytic converter and basically burn there, making it way too hot. And this is one of the reasons that old Ferraris always started on fire. Uh So what was their solution? They'll put idiot lights on the dash that says, well, your catalytic converter is burning up. It basically says, hey, you've you've got a Ferrari, don't drive it fast. Yes, yes. So then the slow down light will come on, which I think is hilarious. Let's talk to Brian, but before we do, why don't you tell us a little bit about Petrolbox? That's right. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they care for select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all the latest and greatest 
gets sent right there to your doorstep every single month. You know what we got last month that I'm really a, a big fan of? Haven't What's used that? it yet. Is the oil drip tray moldable funnel. Yeah, where you can just... I needed this thing for that Hummer I had for a while because those idiots put the cross member directly under the drain pan hole. <laughs> so it went everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, this you can mold right in yeah, there. So cool. it's always these kind of these cool uh, like gadgets and gizmos you wouldn't normally necessarily need. Sure. Or think you need until you have one. And, and try it's it out. Great. So Petrobox, there's two basic levels, one for less than 20 bucks a month. The Petrobox Premium, though, gets you even more of that gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use code OVERCREST at checkout. That'll get you $6 off your first order. All right, before we get on the horn with Brian, I want to have everybody take a look at his Instagram, at Brian's Questionable Decisions, just so you can follow along, see what's going on, see his car, and see what we're talking about. All right, let's call up Brian. Hello, this is Brian. Hey, Brian, it's Chris and Jake from the Overcrest Podcast. How's it going, man? Pretty good. Where are, are you, you right now? What are you doing? <laughs> I'm just curious. I am in Pennsylvania. Are you on your way back home, or uh, what's what's where in do you call home? Um, that's um, you know up for debate. Yeah, but <laughs> from what I'm seeing over the last few months, I guess that's probably true. Yeah, so I'm in Pennsylvania right now. Um, this is where a lot of my family is, so I'm with family for now. Do they Car- think you're crazy? <laughs> Does your family think you are crazy? Um, they're all crazy themselves in some way, shape, or form, so it's more just like, oh, yep, that's Brian. <laughs> so did your, did your family or your father, anything kind of influence you that would – put you on a path to, you know, going down this road that you've gone with your car? Uh, well, so my, my father passed away last August. So that was definitely a contributing factor to starting to basically live out of the back of my car for however long this has been now. Um, why, why though? What was it about his passing that kind of encouraged you to do this? Do you think? Well, he and so I have a job. I have a regular job. And um, besides that, he was the only other thing that was kind of keeping me in a specific location. You know, he's getting older and needed some taken care of. And so when he passed away, that was no longer there. So simultaneously, I was renting a house from a, a friend in Philadelphia and she was overseas, wanted to come back because it was, you know, we were, she had no reason to be overseas anymore with the, like the, she was in the UK and they had a pretty strict lockdown. She wanted to come back. Right. So gave up the house. Um, didn't again have a reason to be somewhere specific. So just packed up the car and started driving. So you how long have you had this car? Uh, got the car in 2019, so two just over two years, summer of 2019. What do you drive? What were you driving before this? What was kind of the, you know, obviously you love cars and you love driving. So is there something that you had before this that you drove in this way, or did it just happen with the Ferrari? All of my cars that I have owned have had some level of uh, adventure to them. So the first, so 
I moved to New York City when I was, uh, I guess, 17 or 16 for college. Um, didn't need a car. Never had a car in high school. Went to Boston after that. Didn't need a car there. Moved back to New York City. And then didn't actually buy my first car until I was 30. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So, and at that point, it was like, I, you know, clearly I like cars. It's always been a thing. I'm an adult now. I've got a job. Let me just, I should buy a car. So the was it just the urban lifestyle that you just didn't need it? Public transport, bikes? I mean, it's it's very strange. Usually we have people on the podcast who are like, yeah, I was like, I came out of the womb and my dad handed me a road and track magazine. <laughs> and ever since then, I found that I really love cars. And they actually used to cut it up in little pieces and sprinkle it on my breakfast cereal even. It's been, it's been a part of my life ever since. So it's, hearing somebody say that they, you know, weren't into cars until they were 30, but that they yeah. always really liked cars, it just doesn't, it, the, sure. the pieces don't go together. I'm trying to figure that out. I was absolutely into cars as a kid and growing up and throughout the whole thing, but it was always just a, uh, it was never a necessity. I never needed a car to get anywhere. So I wasn't going to just buy a car as a struggling graduate student just to have a car if I didn't need it, you know? So I waited until I thought I could get a car that I would like. And at that point, you know, it was of all of the options, you know, I have a few bucks in my pocket, trying to hone in on something specific was pretty difficult. And, um, you know, at that point, the, the choice went down to like a 9-11 clearly is like the, the Swiss Army knife of, of cars, I and believe. What period of time are we talking here? So you got the Ferrari in 19, 2019. When are so, you looking at this Swiss Army knife? The Swiss Army knife period was 2010. Okay, okay. 2009, 2009, 2009 yeah. So, not, so like my car duration of ownership has not been particularly long, but I think I've had a pretty decent um, experience with them. So, Well, it's, you're looking at a time when the Swiss Army knife was like, you could buy them at Walmart, they were $8, <laughs> and, and it was not a big deal. And not everybody was looking for a Swiss Army knife. They were just, you could just get one. Now the Swiss right. Army knife, you go on, it's in like a crystalline case, you open it up, it's like Swiss Army knife, and it's just cost a million dollars. So it's interesting that you were still... Um, not everybody was looking for those cars and didn't really see them as uh, being put up on the pedestal as you as you will as they are today. So when you're looking for one in 2010, that's interesting. Well, that being yeah. said, Brian, were you always looking? I mean, are you talking air cooled 911s or were you looking at more modern stuff? Was it always vintage? Well, that was the question, and you know, so like the 911, I never really appreciated the 911. It was not like one of those cars that I was like, oh, look at this thing. It's so amazing. You know, I was much more of a 928 guy, honestly, as I was growing up. Um, but is that because of risky business? I was just going <laughs> to ask. <laughs> so, so we'll, I'll get into to that in a, in a little bit. But at the time, yeah. So at that, at that time, price point was either like mid 80s like an early 3.2 or an SC or a 996. What and were the SCs like, going for at that time? Were they like $6, $7? For a good one, you were looking at high 20s high or mid 20s. And uh, same with a, uh, a reasonable 996. Sure. And then the one thing that I was, the, 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 the deciding factor was basically, do I want a car that works or do I want a car <laughs> that 
require a lot of effort. And again, I'm still living in New York City in an apartment, had to pay for a garage. And I wanted something that would be more or less reliable with air conditioning that worked. Ah, so, see, that's the key. I, was, I wasn't sure which one was the reliable one that actually worked <laughs> until you said air conditioning that worked. And now I know it's the 996. Yeah. So that 996 was the first car that I bought. And I actually do still have it. And it's was driving it just this morning. So, um, yeah, great car. And it's so probably everybody that listens to you guys um, is a Top Gear fan. And so, you know, as I was in college and grad school, I watched literally every single one of their episodes on YouTube at the time, you know, however we could get them. And, you know, all their like challenges, their money challenges. I remember the first thing that I did or one of the first things that I did with that car was I wanted to go skiing with it. So, you know, you can buy a ski rack for that 996 and you can get it shipped and the whole thing all costs about six or seven hundred bucks. And then I saw one for sale on Craigslist or on Ren's, uh, uh, Renlist. And I thought, okay, for six or 700 bucks, and that thing was for sale in Toronto. I thought, I bet I can drive to Toronto, stay over, hang out, buy the thing, and drive back for less than the price of having it shipped to me new. Yeah. So that was like the first, like, oh, okay, yeah, we can use these cars as kind of a fun little set up a challenge and see where we're going to go with it. So that was your first real adventure that you took was the, was the picking up of the roof rack. Picking up of the roof rack. Yep. And what was it about that trip that was like, okay, I need more of this. I gotta, I gotta do more. I need, I I need it. I need it. Um, success. I mean, and that's like addiction, right? Right? It's like you, you, you succeed and like you get that little like, Oh wow, this is like great. I did it. And, you know, that's that's how you kind of get sucked into to any of these types of uh, interests or endeavors. So but, tell me about the Ferrari purchase. How okay. did that go? Because, I mean, it's, you know, buying a Porsche is pretty easy. They made, especially a 996, they made so many thousands of them. So many thousands. You can buy one. I mean, you can buy a 308 whenever you want to, but it's a little bit more of a particular minefield than buying a 996. <laughs> yeah, so, so the 308 was never really... A dream car of mine. So you didn't um, watch like Magnum PI in short shorts with a 1911 on your lap or anything? No, no. I was definitely, <laughs> I was definitely more of a Miami Vice Testarossa uh-huh. kid. Um, and also V12. Yeah, definitely. But I do, I mean, I do appreciate some good disco. And I think that the <laughs> way is like much more of a disco car than it is like an eighties car. Like, I mean, you know, we all think of it as eighties, but like it's a seventies car through and through, if you ask me. Right. Um, uh, so it's also really, really pretty. It's a really good looking car. Like whenever you just walk up to it, you're like, wow, they, the, the, the design, they just, they nailed it on that one. And even like the three twenty eight. You know, when they try and modernize it a little bit, it loses some of the aesthetic. Sure. So it's it's super pretty. So anyway, it was always in my my sights as kind of like a oh that's an affordable Ferrari. If I ever wanted to get a Ferrari, it would be you know good. But you know, I'm not really a Ferrari fanboy either. So well, it's a t- completely from what I can the feeling that I've gotten over the last. 20 years of doing car stuff 
is a Ferrari people are are very a particular type of person. And that was yeah. most evidence for me. And we'll talk about, you know, what <laughs> purists think of of your car too, I guess. But when Mike Burroughs started building his yellow Ferrari with the with the K series swap for the Stanceworks YouTube channel, watching yeah. the Ferrari forum basically twist itself into pretzels over a car that they made several thousand of is a little absurd. Yeah, sure. Did right. you did you experience any of that when when you you know, bought yours and started doing what you're doing with it? Uh, well, not when I bought it. So, but definitely more recently when it's gotten a little bit more um, airtime, so to speak, or just a little bit more notoriety, uh, definitely gotten a little bit of harsh feedback on, is this the appropriate use for this car? Why are you abusing such a classic, you know? And that gets to, you know, there's all kinds of levels of, of classic, so to speak. Um, sure. Any Ferrari is a, is, you know, special, but when you start to dig into it, there are definitely some Ferraris that are more just used cars rather than right. type of a, a precious item that needs to be, that needs to be, you know, cherished forever. Let's be honest. It's got the same fuel system as a Volvo. <laughs> it is if, if you're thinking about used cars, it's same that same fuel system. So, was buying this car different? Tell me about the the minefield that you went through with buying this thing. There was probably there was there was no minefield. I will say the one thing that I always told myself is that if I were to ever buy a 308, because you know, like all of us, we always are window shopping. We always just look around to see what's happening on the sites and see what's available. And you know, you see some some car that you've always thought was good, what boxes does it check? So the two boxes that I was really always interested in, if I were ever to get a Ferrari, at least a uh, mid-engine V8 Ferrari, were, it should be red, it should have the tan interior. Like, I, I mean, like, red over black, good, but, like, it should be red over the tan interior. So that was number one. Second thing, well, do you guys want the short version or the well, long version? This is a podcast. We'll take the long version. <laughs> So I mentioned that my father was not doing very well. And so I had spent probably a year, year and a half driving between New York City, where I was living and where I work, Philadelphia, where I also work and have some family. And then my dad, who lives in Maryland. And so I was driving up and down basically 95, spending two to three days in each in each city, like checking out my dad, coming to see family in Pennsylvania, going to New York, working, working, you know, like paying attention. And at some point after, I don't know, a year of that, I said, I, I, I need a, I need a vacation. I hadn't taken a vacation in a while. So I called my brother and said, Jack, like, can you come out and like take care of dad for just keep an eye on him for a couple of weeks? I'm going to go, going to go on a trip. A buddy of mine had been asking me to come out to Seattle, go on a sailing trip. I was like, I'm coming these days. Get ready. Bought myself a first class ticket. Was like, I deserve this. I haven't taken a vacation in forever. First class ticket from New York to Vancouver. Got off the the flight. Clearly a couple of Bloody Marys in. <laughs> and what was I doing? I, I um, got into a, I had a few hours to kill before I would see my friend. And just like, found a car to drive me around 
So I'm sitting in the back seat and I was just checking out, bring a trailer. And there is a 1982 red over tan Ferrari 308 with a few miles on it. So like not any collector at a really good price. I thought, eh, let me just throw in a bid because why not? So I did. And then did not really believe that it would take. And so I kind of accidentally bought (laughs) on the back of a, from the back of a, it was like these, these like rental Teslas that, that like you could get a driver to drive you around in Vancouver. So that's why, that's how I acquired the car. So you accidentally bought a Ferrari 308. That's great. That's, that's the first questionable decision. Um, there, There seems to be many more. So, so where was this car? Where was it located? It was in Bend. So Okay, so that's went, not even too far. Yeah, no, it wasn't that far. And so what happened was I went and met my friend. We hung out for a couple of weeks up the, like in that northwest up towards Vancouver Island. Beautiful area up there, by the way. Oh, it's Mountain. incredible. And you went sailing? We went sailing for two weeks. Like, like sailing like we're not coming home for two weeks or sailing like we're going to go out and sail for a while, come back and get hammered at the yacht club? Sailing, we are not coming home for two weeks. What kind of, tell tell me about this boat. (laughs) Um, I want to say somewhere between 38 and 42 feet. I'm not so specific, but. Just you and him? Swedish. Yes. Yeah. uh, We had a couple of other friends. Okay. um, But, you know, it's a three cabin, two cabin, two cabin uh, sailboat. Um, I'm not, I've not been trained in sailing at all, but it's good for me because, you know, I spend so much time like trying to do work and like figuring stuff out that when I go hang out with this friend of mine, it's good. Cause I can just kind of check out cognitively and just, he just tells me like, pull that line, pull this thing, go put that thing over there and just do it. And meanwhile, have a beer, have a drink. Cool. Good. It's easy. Yeah. I've, I've done a little bit of sailing, not much, just very little. And it is one of the, one of the best experiences because everything is very, everything you're doing, even though he's telling you do this, do that, do this, it's all very important. Like sure, all, yeah. it's all like this is all like critical tasks that you're being given if you screw them up you're in deep shit chris i was on our collegiate sailing team Ooh, yep wow yep we're up out on the lake yep <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit Not that impressive it's a little different than a 40-foot sailboat on the yes, ocean where things can get really serious and go wrong really fast yes even in just like regular water you can get in trouble yeah and it's it's a lot about just like paying attention you know just like and not too dissimilar from driving an old car. Just like pay attention to what's happening. Like, don't, don't, you know, you can't just be asleep at the wheel. Um, so I think yeah. what I like most about it is all of the the terminologies and the and the, and the task all have really weird words that you would never know. I don't. I can't even think of any of them. Like all the different. It's sales. not a sail. It's a sheet. It's yeah, not like a, all these a rope. Things. It's a line. Yes, all this different terminology right. that you have to learn, and you have to like really kind of dedicate yourself to understanding and learning if you want if you want to not die, basically. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I did have to just pay attention to what I was saying there when I said pull this line. As pull, <laughs> pull this. Rope. Did the trip uh, give you what you needed? Um, at that point, yes, it totally did, you know, and I, you know, I've been going on these sailing trips with this buddy of mine for, I don't know, I've known him for 20 years now and we go out at least every, I mean, he does it as much as he can, but for me, it's just absolutely like a, a time for me to get away from everything and like not do anything. And if you look back even through my Instagram, like I 
was up there in Seattle and, and there's some some shots on the boat. So Right. I'm starting to understand your mentality a little bit with what you did with the car. Um so did you go get the Ferrari from did you just get off the boat and then, you know, fly to Bend and buy the car? I'm I'm imagining the story if I if if I was going to write, it would be like, okay, you bought this car, went on a sailboat, thought about it the whole time, basically can't even <laughs> stop thinking about this thing, get in, a, get on a plane, go to Bend, Oregon, and then drive the car back to Pennsylvania. Um, the only difference there is I actually drove it back to Seattle, put it in my buddy's garage because I needed, I didn't have the time at that, at that point to like, I needed to get home or I needed to get back to New York and, um, so I just stuffed it in my buddy's garage for a couple months and then came back for it, I think maybe two months later, and, and then drove it home. Okay. So, okay. So yeah. the first kind of the, the inkling that I got of this car, and I knew of you long before I ever messaged you at all, was that you, you know, kind of took this thing, with, took it skiing, right? I mean, obviously, like it was skiing, you drove all the way to Toronto for a, for a roof rack, for goodness sake, so you could go skiing. So obviously, like skiing, you took the Ferrari skiing, you got it, like pictures of it in the in this snowy region with skis on it and stuff like that. Um, tell us about kind of the first adventure that you had with this thing. Um, it's all been one long adventure, so I'm not sure that first is the right Well, tell term. us where it started. Yeah, so it started like so. It started as as I was saying uh, about a year ago, September ish, um, when I first started driving. And again, my father had passed away, so and my my job went completely remote. And we had a back to the office date tentatively set for January one, twenty twenty one. So this the January first of this year. And so I was like, okay, well, I've got three, four months. Let's just go on a road trip with the Ferrari and see what happens. Um, I was planning to go to Denver. I have a cousin there. Uh, I was going to hang out in Denver, drive around the mountains, head out towards L.A. where my brother lives. That was going to be the idea. And then halfway through, you know, things were not getting better with regard to, um, uh, you know, getting back into our offices and so the road trip or the idea of it was extended so i was like okay well do i drive south or do i hang out in the north and and or hang out in the west and do i avoid the winter or do i go for it and i decided like i've you know there's been i've been mostly school and work since high school and so and living East Coast and also enjoying skiing a lot, I get limited time on decent sized mountains. So I thought this was the one opportunity that I'd have to go out and like spend some time on some good mountains for the majority of the winter. So And the West has a completely different feel than the East. If you've spent yeah, a lot of time on the East Coast, the West is really great. Yeah. And just living in New York City, like it's always just a pain in the neck to get out of there. And just like the whole time to you might as well just fly west rather than spending the time to get out and get to like one of the small the mountains in Vermont or whatever. So anyway, so that was it. It was just a decision that I made at some point, probably in November ish, that I would continue this through the winter and spring and just start to hit some of the more hard to reach ski mountains that I've always heard about and always wanted to visit. 
And so, so I did. So at that point, I think I was in like New Mexico, Texas. And after the holidays, so I came back to the East Coast to stay with family for the holidays. And then after the holidays, brought the car to Austin. It was more or less mechanically sound at that point and just started to winterize it, so to speak. Got some nice winter tires, figured out the ski rack situation, put some better lighting on it and, um, you know, got it up on a lift and tried to rust proof it to the best of my ability, you know, with just like whatever you could buy on Amazon and, um, and then just started skiing with it. So tell me about this roof rack from what I can see, it's (laughs) held on by suction cups that, you know, you say suction cups, everybody's like, Oh my God, but these are industrial serious business like you push to create vacuum. Yeah, it's it's. I've used them for holding rigs on cars for doing filming. I mean, they are legit suction cups. Where did this idea come from? Because it's obviously isn't something that's made for the car. I don't know where the I don't remember exactly where the idea came from. I think I was probably just googling around for for um, like ski racks on sports cars. And there is a company called Sea Sucker who made the ski rack that I purchased. I was trying to get in touch with them, and I'm not sure, you know, what kind of liability we have here for me talking about. But they just never returned my call. And I was like, I want to get some of these things. Like, send them to me, please. And then they just didn't return my call for a couple of weeks. And so I just found a set on eBay, had them sent to me, and put them on. So the 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 i think that most of their their products are for boats for hanging stuff on like the the you know the fiberglass walls of uh, um and so they've got pretty like stuff for fishing poles and stuff like that yeah that kind of stuff yeah gotcha um so anyway the rear set of ski racks went on the on the engine cover on that deck pretty easily and it got a good suction the 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 suction cups and then i was you know all right let's just see if they first i was thinking on the the roof the actual roof but that would have been too long and then i put them on the spoiler but the spoiler has a subtle curve in it and couldn't get that couldn't get a good seal on it right that's kind of what i was wondering yeah so in true backyard engineering fashion i was just like all right well called up my brother and was like what do you think here just went to Home Depot, got some hose clamps that you use to put your your air conditioning ducts together and clamp that thing down and and put a like um, a rubber tighten strap underneath it to protect the um, the the fiberglass on the um, of the spoiler. Just tighten that down. And it stayed the entire winter. Didn't even have to touch that. And what do you put it? What are you putting on there? I'm like a couple duffel bags, some gas. What goes on this well, rack? All right for the skis the skis were you know pretty easy okay and okay skis and a couple sets of poles on there and it held on fine and then when summer came around and i knew i'd be like meeting my brother or meeting friends or whatever and wanted the front seat to not be full of my gear um that's when i started looking into this the um uh the roof rack also, gasoline. I knew that gasoline would probably be a thing. So I needed. What somewhere. size is the tank in that car? Um, it's something around like seventeen or eighteen gallons. It's and you're not, getting what, like eighteen miles per gallon? 
<laughs> well, CAS isn't that bad. I don't know. That's... Maybe 15 and like even less when I'm going slow. Okay. Um, not great. That's like maybe 200, like 250 miles on a tank is, is like, is what I'm comfortable with. Yeah. That's not enough. The problem, the problem with it is though, is that the, they had not quite figured out the baffling in the tanks. So you take a hard left uh, under any acceleration and all the gasoline sloshes away from the pump and the car will sputter. In fact, <laughs> I was in Seattle and I parked with, I don't know, maybe somewhere between an eighth and a quarter of a tank. I parked on a slope with the passenger side down. And then when I went to start it back up, there just wasn't enough fuel to get into the pump. Started, <laughs> and I stuck there with just no fuel and I could not move it. And, you know, I had to call like, actually, I called roadside assistant. They never showed up, but I had to like hoof it to try and like collect some gasoline. Wow. So, anyway, yeah. so, it sounds well, the Dinos had they did oil. They had oil pressure problems. They designed the motor and then they turn it one way. And now when you turn right, the oil buzzer comes on. So now yep. it is, is a very uh, typical Ferrari thing, apparently, with quantities of things in in tanks that hold them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they design these things on a piece of paper in a drafting on a drafting board in a room, not as they're being used. And I'm not faulting them. Like, clearly, there's a lot of great things about the car, but. And you can't test everything all the time. So no, especially not with a boutique car company like they were at the time. It was it was a very yeah. interesting time for Ferrari in general. So I see that on the car that you've got a CB antenna too, which I I love that. I've got a CB antenna. I've had one on all of my cars except the 911 because I don't have metal bumpers. I don't have anywhere to put it. But did you use that a lot? Uh, not a lot. I used it specifically in in Alaska. Going up the Dalton Road, the Dalton Highway, aka the Hall Road. Um, you know that road's mostly uh, big rigs bringing supplies up to the oil fields. Yeah, and they're on their 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 radios all the time. Um, and the, even, the thing is, like, even apparently, I mean, like, clearly, I'm not a CB radio uh, official, like, uh, expert, but um, even down here in the states, like internet and connectivity via cell phones is so much better than it was right. that it's kind of phasing the CB radio out, but up there, there's no connection. So you still need to use it. And it's mostly used for safety coming or like coming around or over blind Hills. You know, when a big truck's coming barreling up or down um, a grade just to like call out, I'm here, pay attention. Like somebody's out here. And there are signs, there's signage that says call channel 19 when you're coming around the hill, this hill or that hill. So, so I did use it there. Did like have a, so what did you say? Hey guys, a uh, Ferrari coming over the hill <laughs> in about 30 seconds. Yep. That's exactly what I have to say. And they're like, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm saying, but I definitely got a couple calls that were uh, interesting. You know, one guy was asking me like, you up here hunting caribou with that thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll throw uh, it right on this roof rack. No problem. Sure. Right. Uh, but mostly they were just like, did I just see that? Was that a Ferrari I just passed? So, so yeah, the, the, the CB works. Um, adds a little bit of uh, visual interest, I think, to the car, which I appreciate. Sure. And it's clamped onto the roof rack. And I, I didn't finish up with the roof rack. So 
after ski season and knew I was going to like need some more space also during, so like the, 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 the front bonnet where there's usually a spare tire. I knew that like going to the Dalton, I wanted a spare tire and there hadn't been before. So like, I knew that I'd lose all that storage space up there. Um, and so I essentially disassembled the, the sea sucker ski rack just used the suction cups, which have just a threaded bolt hole in them yep. and kind of like cobbled together some brackets that I, you, that are used. I think they're, they are light bar brackets. Um, got them on Amazon, got a couple aluminum spacers and just kind of like, again, like backyard engineered it to hold that thing down. Yeah. It looks like it works really, really well. And I, I I'm kind I of wondering, know. so you, well, it looks, it's still there. Is it still attached to the car now? It is still attached to the then car Then it now. works awesome. What else, could you, what else could you ask for? So you're driving around the mountains, driving to these ski places, kind of, you know, considering where you're going to go. At what point did you decide, you know what? The Arctic Circle sounds great because that's <laughs> words that don't, have never come across. In my Ferrari. I mean, how many Ferraris have been to the Arctic Circle? One? Three? One I mean, now? I'm, I'm sure there's been a couple other dudes that have done it and not told anybody yeah. or whatever, but... Why? What? What? How did? The, what precipitated this? So that was after. At this point, it was I don't know six, seven months of driving around, like in the middle of the ski season. It was like okay. At that point, uh, my company said we are definitely not opening until September. I said okay. Well, I'm. Am I just driving this car around for the rest of my life? Like, what am I doing? Is there? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, so what would be a good kind of end to this trip? Um, was this so, something where you had to keep getting more, you know, you said when, originally this was kind of like an addiction that you developed with exploring with the 996 going to get the, you know, the ski rack as you're driving around, did you find yourself being like, okay, what can I do? That's more, that's more. Um, clearly not consciously, but I'm sure that the decision for heading to the Arctic uh, circle and the Arctic ocean was kind of based on that, but it was also a clear end. It's like, let me just drive this to the furthest road that's possible. Right. You know, just because like everybody's driven around the mountains, everybody's driven around circles. You can drive across the country a million times, like get to the end. How far can you actually get on a road? And so uh, it didn't take too long to figure out, oh, you can actually drive to the Arctic Ocean. You can drive this far north. And so that's what it was. And then I just kind of set my sights there and started planning around it. So and how did I, you prep the car for this? Because obviously, you know, you're going to have to do something different with tires, with wheels. I mean, how did you get ready to go? Um, so the big things were, so this is coming out of the ski season. And the ski season, I think, like, I had prepped the kind of underside for like salt and rust and all that other shit pretty well. So I was a part of my language. Um, I was, I, w- I was fairly confident in that. And then it was mechanical prep. Um, I found a good mechanic in Denver um, to do like spark plugs and filters and just kind of do a once over on the car to make sure that it's mechanically solid. Did and then, you feel like you were rolling the dice a little bit? 
Sorry? Did you feel like you were rolling the dice a little bit? You know, if the car is mechanically solid, you know, it's technically could make it, but were you nervous or were you scared that it might not? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're always... I mean, it seems like a high likelihood that it wouldn't. When you think of a Ferrari <laughs> doing this, it's like, it's not even a 50-50 chance. You presume that you are not going to make it, I would think. Right, but but um, but that's that's life, isn't it? I mean, we're all just kind of going through life. And if everything is, if you know you're going to finish everything or everything's going to work out exactly as you planned it, then where's the interest in that? You know, that's just, you know, we might as well just concede to being robots. So, so yeah, of course there was some level of, of uncertainty in whether or not I was going to make it. And that's, you know, part of it. Like, let's just go try this. And if not, we'll figure out a way to either get there or get home safely. So did you have any sort of contingency plan? I mean, if you broke down in the middle of nowhere, were you just hoping your CB would work and you'd be able to get someone to come collect you or, yeah, so like CB was one thing. Second thing was I did buy a little satellite text message messenger, um, little Garmin thing, totally useful. And I think that's probably useful for anybody who's going kind of off grid for a while because emergencies do happen, you know, and you do need to get in touch. Um, so that was like, I think from a safety perspective, that was sufficient for me. I think so what I'm, you said about the risk and doing things that are worthy of risk. You know, a lot of people do dumb things that aren't worth the risk, but there's, there's certain things that are worth it. And I I was on my way here. I was, I was kind of thinking about, you know, talking to you and what you're doing. And I love driving and exploring too. I, I have a trip planned, a whole route planned from Baja all the way up to Tuk Tuk Tuk. I want to do it real bad um, for many of the same reasons that, that you're doing it. And I think about like when people travel and I thought, and everybody travels when they're old. Right. And it's always this quintessential thing. Oh, travel while you're young, blah, blah, blah. And I th- and it's like people have more time when they're old. But I started to think maybe it's because they become wiser in their age that they realize the value of the risk and exploration because they've lived their whole life, maybe not doing it. And it's, it becomes less about capability and more about wisdom. I was just something I was thinking about just in terms of knowing why doing stuff like this is important just as a human being. Yeah, a couple of points on travel. Um, so clearly, I've spent a lot of time over the last year in places that are not um, heavily populated. Uh, and there's, I spent most of the early part of my life traveling to places that were extremely heavily populated, um, you know, whether it was big cities in the States or in Western Europe or wherever. Um, and I feel like understanding different cultures from large communities, large cities is important. However, there is a beauty to this planet, which population does not mesh with well. And so as soon as you get outside of a large urban area, as soon as you get to an area where, you know, there's not been people, it just is spectacular. And if you combine that with a love for driving, you know, and just like being in a car and the sensations that you feel when you're, you know, accelerating around a bend or 
pulling up a, a, a grade or going over a mountain pass or coming down into a valley. It's, it's, you know, one of those things that I didn't realize how much I enjoy, but it's not just the driving and it's not just the traveling, but it's like some combination of both that if I were to do this type of adventure and be in a rental charger, like I think I wouldn't have this, it wouldn't be as enjoyable. If I were to rent a modern exotic car and drive around suburbia, I would equally not have the same experience and wouldn't enjoy it. So it's just this combination of, of, you know, having the driving experience with the setting and the environments that I've been exposed to is, has just been, I don't know. It's just, I, I, I'm, I understand how lucky I am to have experienced it. Yeah. And I think that there's ways to do this for people and a way to get out and explore and do things that don't, that you can have similar reward for yourself. It's all, it's all based on your own personal context, right? Um, Sure. I mean, you could take, there could be a kid who's just like, I'm going to do this. For example, there's a dude, I don't know. I think I might've sent you the account. There's a guy that did in his Volvo Amazon, you know, he drove from, uh, and maybe I didn't show it to you. If I haven't, I should. He's, he's either on his way, just finished or just got to Tuk Tuk from, uh, new, uh, uh, what is it? Halifax? Not Halifax. What's on the far east coast? The island. Halifax, Nova Scotia. That's yeah, right. yeah, Halifax. He's off over in that area driving the whole way, and it's in a it's in a relatively inexpensive car that costs less than ten thousand dollars easily. I mean, you there's ways to do this that don't mean buy a Ferrari and take six, seven, eight that's- months out of your life and do it. You can do even little things, and I think that's what we kind of did with our rally that we did. Mm-hmm. Is you can go and explore in places that. I mean, you can, you know, take baby steps, right? And maybe that's what you were doing a little bit when you went and got your roof rack and then you went out and drove around the mountains a little bit and went skiing and then you stepped up and did the big trip. I mean, it's, you can kind of step up into things. I would definitely not have felt as comfortable going to Alaska um, if I had not already spent so many hours driving the car in the snow over the winter. Um, and I do, I do agree. I don't want to, I don't want it to sound like you have to do this in some rare, complicated, um, uh, difficult to obtain, um, uh, type piece of machinery. It's, you know, but for, but for me, it was just kind of like, I, yeah, of course it was a little bit of a challenge and I like to set up little challenges for myself and say, can you, can you actually do this? Yeah. Okay. We'll do it. Yeah, top then, tier personal edition. I like it. <laughs> right, right. So tell yeah, me a little and, bit about these roads that you're on on your way up there. Is it, you know, we all hear about the, you know, the Dawson over by Dawson that it's, you know, you're going to, you know, blow up your tire and flip your car over and all this other type of thing. Did you have any trouble like on the roads or did you have any, anything break on the car? Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if we actually went through the specifics, but the Dalton Highway is a highway that starts maybe 40 or 50 miles north of Fairbanks, goes up to the Arctic Ocean um, to a town or a a community called Dead Horse, which is um, essentially just oil fields. It's all a commercial commercially owned oil fields and the the services that support the oil fields. The road was built to 
support the pipeline, which essentially runs parallel to the road, um, or maybe the road that runs parallel to the, the pipeline. Um, and the roads are built basically to endure the winters, which means that they're not going to pave them because the pavement's just going to get destroyed. Right. Uh, I'd say there's maybe somewhere between 15 to 20% of the whole thing is paved. Um, there's one town and I'm like throwing up my air quotes right now, town in about, about halfway up called Coldfoot. Um, there are some paved roads around Coldfoot. And Imagine the guy that named that town. What are we going to name this place? Well, I don't know, man. It's quite cold. My feet are fucking freezing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's either that or you know the you know on your journey north. Do you have? Are, oh. are you? Are, do you want to make it? You getting cold feet there, bud? Oh yeah, yeah, it could be that too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's gold so, up here, but do you want it? Yes. Right. So the roads themselves. They, they, they weren't, I'd say overall, like it wasn't terrible. Um, there's definitely potholes. You can't be asleep at the wheel. You have to be paying attention to, to what's happening. Um, and I would honestly say though, that the, the frost heaves that I saw driving through like Yukon territory in Northern, Northern BC were more dangerous than anything that was on the paved roads because like you could pretty easily avoid a a pothole by just by turning the steering wheel a bit but like a frost heave where it's just straight across the road you know i'd lock up all four wheels just like skidding into it and then still bang the the like the frame on on the frost heave going over it so right. um uh so yeah it wasn't that bad they're they're dirt gravel and they use some type of calcium compound mixture to kind of make it more fine and i imagine and there is some debate at the moment um about about washboard like developing on these roads on gravel roads there's not very much washboard up on those roads at all so and because if there was like it would have been impossible, but you know, in some of these dirt roads that seem smooth, you know, you could do 45, 50 miles an hour and it's not that bad. You know, you got to watch out for the potholes, as I said, but um, they're smooth enough that you can get some decent speed on them. Well, that's kind of, that's always the fear is you, you run into some pretty, pretty crazy rocks and roads out there and you can puncture a tire and be stuck on the side of the road. But did you, did anything else break on the car? Did you have any car trouble? I mean, you imagine on a Ferrari and there's going to be something mechanical. Something's broken. Yeah. So I'm usually pretty good about listening to the car and like when it says it wants attention, like getting to it right away. There had been a squeal that was developing for a little bit um, when I was in Fairbanks and driving around, you know, and I was just like, um, it just needs to warm up. It's the cold temperatures. It'll be fine. <laughs> and I think I was six miles into the into the. Um, onto the Dalton and I look in my rear view mirror and I see the smoke or the steam coming up the back. And I'm like, well, all right. And look down see my battery lights on. I'm like, all right, that's my alternator belt. So rolled it down into this little Valley. And sure enough, the alternator belt was out or had been like torn up, tried to take the try. Like, so this is something that happened to me before I more or less knew the procedure 
started to take the wheel off because you can access it via the rear passenger side uh, wheel well. Started to take it off. And then because it's all gravel, my jack was just kind of like sinking in. I couldn't even get the car up high enough to slide my wheel under for some protection. And and then at that point, I just like stopped because there's no way I was getting underneath the car to do that fix. Um, Crazy so man that- dies on Dalton Highway driving his Ferrari from New York City. <laughs> go, 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 go figure. So at that point, and I did call for help. Um, and I called for a, a truck. The truck came and they were, you know, they said, do you want to go back or do you want to try and fix it? Tell and me I about said, the guy that shows up in a tow truck in on the Dalton Highway. Yeah. So it was him and his buddy who were really super like they were into it, you know. Um, so I had actually satellite messaged a good friend of mine who lives in, in Austin and she coordinated the, the, uh, the truck because there was no service out there. And she said like, she called a couple of people and they kind of just laughed. And then this guy, Gary, if you ever happen to be up there in Fairbanks and you need a tow, call Gary at Borealis Towing. He was like into it. He was like, yes, let's go check this out. And he even picked up one of his buddies. So Gary and I think his <laughs> name, they came up, you know, just to kind of check it out, just to see the, uh, just for the novelty, I guess, of it. And really the only thing I needed was a solid base to lift the car up. Right. So we pulled the car up onto the flatbed, jacked it up with his, he had a kind of standard floor jack, jacked it up, like secured it where I didn't feel uncomfortable getting underneath it. Replaced the belt, and I think it was total, I was probably like three-hour delay. So it wasn't that much. It was. And did you uh, just have an extra V-belt with you? Did you bring that or maybe oh, yeah. some other spare parts? Yeah, I've got two two, two, two belts, two okay. of those belts. One of the other belt, uh, there's a, um, um, there's there's two accessory belts, and I carry definitely carry those with me. With me. So put that back on, you know, and was able to make it to cold foot by dark. Um, so that was a success. However, when I got up to the Arctic Ocean, that belt started squealing again. And so on my way back, I was just like, oh, geez, like, did I not tighten it enough? I don't know. So I happened to when I was in cold foot that middle night, I um met one of the permanent residents of this town he is one of two permanent residents his what? name is Mike. why do you call it a permanent resident what does that mean because there's a lot of seasonal workers that come up like during the summertime to do either like fishing or tours or um to just work around but like in the winter you know it's like negative 60 or whatever it is outside people don't just live there there's not much to do up there in the winter time um so he is but he is one of the permanent residents this guy mike and so i sent him a message and i was like hey listen i need some help do you know how i can either get a lift or whatever he said yeah come over i've got jacks and so just drove up to mike's house which is you know a small little um very simple home in the middle of the woods in the middle of nowhere of northern alaska he helped me jack the car up and we took everything apart and put it back together, tighten that belt up, squeal no longer there. Tell me about and Mike for a second. What was this guy like? I mean, was he 
what is what does he do for a living? What is he doing up there? Did he is he there on purpose or is he there because he has to be there? Can he not Mike, leave? Yeah. So Mike's family, Mike's great, first of all. Um, so Mike's family is from that area. I think they own a bunch of the land around there. Uh, and he was extremely excited to meet me the night before when when I was coming through Coldfoot to the point where we were inside the little camp, you know, drinking a beer. And then he said he wanted to show me my his house, which I imagine was, you know, across the parking lot or something, but required like a 10 minute drive in his pickup, like into the woods, into the pitch black nothingness. Are you like, and, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, right. You know, when you're <laughs> you're in a, you know, somebody you've just met in his pickup truck, like driving off into the woods in the middle of Alaska. And does my phone work here at all? You know, and very was, easy to lose a body out there. Very, <laughs> easy. very, very easy. So but, you know, he was really eager to show me around the town that night, even in, even though there was zero sunlight and there's no light, there's no street lights. Um, so. So, you know, I said, thanks. He gave me his phone number. He said, call me if you need anything. And it, as a matter of fact, or as it, as it were, <laughs> I did need something. I needed some help. And so when I came back into Coldfoot, he was more than willing to help. And some people uh, say that and don't mean it. Yeah. But, but I, I swear, you know, he was like trying to like find cardboard or like, like plywood for me to lay on. So I wasn't in the dirt when I was trying to get underneath the car. And like, you know, I, I was hunting for a particular socket and he's like, I got it right here, you know, and like offered me his tools and was just so generous with everything. And then when we were all done, you know, he gives me a beer. We just hang out and just chit chat, like drink beers and watch the leaves. It was great. And if you had that brand new Dodge charger, you never would have met Mike cause it wouldn't have broke. Indeed. Yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't, never would have happened any of this. So, um, so yeah, so I think his family had been up there for a long time. He said he was uh, married. For, I mean, so Mike is, I think he said he's in early 60s or so, early 60 years old, and um, recently married uh, to a woman from Nome, Alaska. And so they're now the permanent residents of Coldfoot. Well, it was very interesting. And like I said, you never meet him unless he broke down, which is, you know, no anybody, trip is any fun if nothing breaks. Right. Well, I don't know about that. Less right. exciting. <laughs> Less exciting. Yep. Especially in hindsight, when you could talk about it when you're not six feet under in the middle of nowhere off some dude's 15 mile <laughs> long driveway in northern Alaska. Yeah. But I mean, that all goes to, okay, so two things. One is like you can, when you can prepare as much as you want. And there's all different levels of preparation. And when you're dealing with limited space, as I have been with this Ferrari, like I'm not going to carry around an extra differential or anything, but like you bring stuff like belts and tools and you figure stuff out. Um, yeah. At some point you're just being ridiculous when you're prepping and bringing, bringing things, you know, you just, yeah. it's just too much. Yeah. It's too much, but right. And that also leaves uh, uh, that, that those scenarios of all right well here's a problem let's figure it out because you know even being stuck in the middle of nowhere like like where there's no connection like am i going to be able to do this myself what am i going to do and that happened later down the road where you know my throttle cable broke that happened initially when i was in um yellowstone park 
and <clears throat> there was no lack of people in Yellowstone Park. So I knew I could always just flag a ride and get back to town. But like, you know, just kind of jimmying around with the um, the throttle, uh, the throttle body, you could just kind of limp my way back to town, find a hardware store, couple together some kind of a fix, you know, just figure it out and get get it done. Well, but, when you and I talked, I figured there had to be some sort of motorcycle or scooter store that would have some sort of cable that you could just somehow make work. Yeah. And I mean, so does a hardware store. Hardware stores have lengths of cable you can buy by the foot. Yep. The biggest issue is making the the connections, you know, and making mm-hmm. sure that everything lines up appropriately. And so the, the biggest thing with like uh, a bike store is that throttle cable goes from, you know, the, the, the accelerator pedal all the way to the back. So it's going to be longer than any throttle pedal or even a bicycle cable that sure. you can find off the shelf. It's, I think, eight plus feet or so. So, um, so yeah, a lot of cable, a lot of different, uh, channels it has to make its way through, but. Well, honestly, yeah, I think yeah. that if that's what you got away with, uh, broken or you lost a V belt and you broke a throttle cable in Yellowstone, I mean, Man, that's pretty, pretty damn good. It's not what I would have thought of for a Ferrari. I would have thought you'd be doing valve adjustments on the side of the road. <laughs> Got all of that done. So the, honestly, the most like infuriating thing was my oil filler cap. The there's a little kind of retainer on the backside of the oil filler cap, um, and I was taking the oil filler kill, oil filler cap off, and that thing just popped off its little rivet. And just dropped right into the valve cover. Oh, and shit. I'm just like, mother, God damn it. <laughs> and, you know, I'm at a gas station. I was just kind of chopping up the oil and didn't expect. And so just kind of wandered around. And then standing next to this this um, building and some guy wanders out. And he's smoking a cigarette. And I ask him, do you have a magnet? And he was like, oh, yeah, sure. Like a mechanic. <laughs> okay. All right. And um, so he comes back out, you know, it's like a legit mechanics magnet on the, you know, like a 12 inch bar reach in. Thank God that little piece was magnetic. No Took kidding. a bit, but was able to fish it out. And then we are trying to cobble together some, um, some solution here because I couldn't get that thing just to seal up on there or I didn't. And then that building that this gentleman happened to wander out of was just like a straight up machine shop. So I was just like, yes. <laughs> so, you know, and he had big rigs in there that he was working on. He had this old muscle car that he said that he hadn't driven in 15, like a drag drag car. He hadn't hadn't rid, or driven in, he said, 15 years or whatever. Um, and, but, you know, we like looked through all of his stuff. We drilled out a little, like, little thin hole in the center and pop riveted that backside back in there. And then it, then it held just like that the whole way back. So, Well, Hey, that still sounds like you're getting away light. (laughs) No, trust me. And I slipped that guy some, what he called funny money or us money. Cause that was in Yukon. He was like, what am I supposed to do this? (laughs) I don't know, but I'm, I'm sorry. You should have just been like, Hey man, this stuff's worth way more than the Canadian dollar right now. (laughs) I wasn't trying to be insulting at the time. Clearly. (laughs) So what's, what's next? You made it up there. I mean, did it, did, did you get the, the catharsis and the, and the finality of it when you reached the Arctic ocean? Was it what you needed? What did you get it? I got some of it, you know, but I, 
I, I, I can't say that the, this adventure is over. Um, the, the, the car is running well. Um, you know, there's some little things that need maintenance, but like it's doing well and I'm enjoying it. And our, my work schedule is remote now indefinitely. So well, I can't I, wait not, to see this thing with a Elon Musk satellite dish on it. So yeah. you can work from anywhere in the world. Yeah. So the suggestions have been coming in pretty fast and furious about like, Oh, well now you need to drive to Key West or now you should go to Nova Scotia or, or, you know, clearly the other obvious one is to head all the way to Argentina. Tierra and del so Fuego. What, yeah. So when I was in Coldfoot, there was a, a guy who came up to me. He was on an RS 1800 or, you know, one of those BMW bikes. Um, and, you know, we chatted for a few seconds and he said that he was going up to the Arctic Ocean and then we leapfrogged each other basically all the way back to um, uh, to Fairbanks. Um, so, like, I'd be stopping to put fuel in the tank or take a picture and then see them go by and then I'd see them stop and take pictures. So it was nice to have them um, on, like, you know, just as, like, a comfort. Just to say, like, okay, good. Like, there's somebody I know where he's doing our thing, but like, at least there's somebody I know. And he's going all the way to Argentina and he's on his way. He and I actually met up in Denver a couple of days ago. And, um, because he was coming through, I was coming through and we had a beer and finally sat down and had a nice talk. Um, but that is the other, that's the other potential end point. Well, now. don't leave without me. We should, we should talk. Cause I know there's a couple other people that are, you know, our kin in this. And maybe we could, maybe we, cause I, you know, I'm always worried about driving through Mexico and Panama with my 911. But I right. feel like if there's a 911 and a Ferrari and a, maybe uh, like a green 996 of a guy I know, maybe we wouldn't get murdered. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm, who knows? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get married. Maybe, maybe it'll be all right. Hopefully, maybe they go for the Ferrari before the night. Yeah, that's obviously cl- well. It's red, so it's yeah. clearly worth more money. Well, uh, well, the other thing is, I understand again that it is a classic car, and it may be precious to many people. But again, it's still just a car, and yep. like you know, if you guys really want my car that badly in Panama or wherever the heck you are, like take it. You're welcome to have it. Yeah, yeah, it's all yours. It's all yours. No problem. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not discounting the, the, uh, the South American tour. There's so much else to Like I want to do Australia. I want to do a loop around Australia. I want to go to Tasmania. I want to go, I want to drive to the Arctic ocean in, uh, in Norway. Peking to Paris. I want to do Peking to Paris. Not in my car. I want to build a car for that. There's all, I mean, I would love to drive around Africa. I think that would be super interesting. It's just sure. United States is is a great place to start, but and I know people look at it and they go, "Oh man, I don't know." There's there's really no cell phone service out there, but there's really nowhere you're gonna go in America where if your car breaks down, you're dead, you know, or, or right. you're gonna starve, or you're gonna that you couldn't right. walk to get help. I mean, it's very very low key here. Yeah, no, I mean that's always been kind of in the back of my mind that like I know that I will always be able to figure out some safe way to civilization even in even in alaska even on that road on the on the dalton you know i wasn't driving at night 
and um, there's always there's during the day there's traffic every you know car come by every five ten minutes most of them are work trucks you know and if I were stopped almost all of them would stop to make sure I was okay you know I'd just be taking pictures or whatever the heck but um, yeah it's not so desolate there's enough people around so the two things that I would say have been a surprise to me in terms of how much they keep me driving and keep me wanting to, to do this type of thing is one, the people that I meet, like, like I mentioned, Mike, who just, you know, he didn't have to help me. He didn't have to like take time out of his afternoon or give me a beer at the end of doing our work. Um, the people that I meet around the road that are just around the country that are just willing to help out and just be uh, generous with their, their time and whatever they do have. And the second thing is all of the folks who are on, um, who have been on, you know, watching my Instagram and have been saying that, you know, this is inspirational. It might stimulate them to take an adventure themselves or break out of whatever it is that they have been doing and do something new, do something um, out of the norm and, and might kind of get them to a new and different and more exciting and more productive place um, yeah. that, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, me just going for a drive for a little bit would have um, allowed me to to experience those things. Yeah, man. Well, keep at it. I appreciate you hanging out with us. All right. Thanks, All right. Chris. Take care of yourself. Bye. 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 Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Olberg Car Care. Olberg is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple, foolproof, two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code Overcrest. The discount code is good not only on OberkCarCare.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. When I made uh, Zeal with Alex, yeah. it was just something that we're like, and it's nothing like what he did. I mean, nothing. Uh, just a totally different thing, different media experience for people. But when we did the film, it was just this thing where we're just, you know what, we're going to hop in the car. We're going to go out to Car Week and then... I don't even think we were really filming. We were just people that Alex liked taking pictures and doing video, and I like taking pictures and doing video. So naturally, when we went together, we took, took a lot of media. Just took pictures and did video and then yeah. put together this film that to this day, and I think what's important is this becomes like what Brian did is aspirational for people. It's aspirational for me. I yeah. want to do that. Yeah. And most people will never do it. Yeah, for just sure. face it, they won't. But- they will do small compartmentalized versions of it, maybe near their town. Maybe they'll come on the Overcrest Rally and drive around Utah. Maybe they will go to Colorado and drive up Pikes Peak and come back down. Whatever their small version of this is, right. and maybe they'll step up. Maybe they'll get bigger and bigger and bigger. Obviously, like Brian said, he didn't go out and just do this, right? It's It was baby steps. It was you know experiencing one thing and then experiencing the next thing, and you're just, you're walking up this stair. It's almost like you're walking up uh, an escalator that's moving really fast. And you can see the top and you're like, wow, this is great. I'm going to get up there eventually. And, you'd, and you're just kind of there. And you're just, as you experience more, you never really get satiated. Right. 
you just need more, more ex- exploration. I think if you remember our interview with James Barkman, I think he kind of epitomizes that. As, as I've watched James Barkman, the, uh, the Explorer, which you should go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. It's one of my favorite interviews we've ever done. The man continues to push the envelope and explore with his mountain climbing. And right. he just goes on and on and on and things get harder and harder and harder. And I think mountain climbing is the perfect analogy for absolutely. this type of exploring. You, you Far more extreme. Small, yeah, but it's, it's more the idea of once you summit something, you want the next higher summit. You want to do the next big thing. Right, right, absolutely. Well, guys, that's it. We will see you next week. If you have not signed up for the Overcrest Drivers Club, we're releasing exclusive episodes whenever we can, anywhere from one time a month to four. We'll see what we can end up putting out. No time today, unfortunately. This interview ran a little bit long. Sign up for the Drivers Club at overcrestproductions.com slash drivers club. That's right. Five bucks a month gets you access to all the exclusive episodes we've done, access to the Discord where you can hang out with like-minded Overcrest Drivers Club. Access to our voicemail, access to merch before it comes out to everyone else. Yes. Access to the rally. Yeah. Before it can apply before everybody uh, everybody else does as well. Anyway, that's it. We will see you guys next week. Take care.